and I've got nothing else to say. I think those books, I don't want to even see them. Like, I think they should be thrown in a Not fire. I'm sure we've got hundreds of people out there that would like to see those books before we burn them. But uh, 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 just so we can identify within our community that we are eradicating uh, this bad stuff. Oh, Fahrenheit 451. 5451, rather than 813 or 121. Fahrenheit 451 is a temperature at which book paper catches fire and starts to burn. I'd like to ask you something else, only I don't really dare. Go ahead. Is it true that a long time ago, farmers used to put out fires and not burn books? Really, your uncle is right. You are lighted ahead. Put fires out. Who told you that? Oh, I don't know. Someone. But is it true? Did they? Oh, what a strange idea. He just itches to know what these books are all about. He just aches to know, isn't it so? Well, take my word for it, Montag. There's nothing there. The books have nothing to say. These are all novels, all about people that never existed. The people that read them, it makes them unhappy with their own lives, it makes them want to live in other ways that can never really be. I'm Julian Paul Butt. I'm Sean Andes. God-fearing Christian moms battled to make sure pedophiles weren't corrupting kids with their gay books and communist ideas. The Karen Battalion took on critical race theory, book bans, and transgender kids, all in the schoolhouse trenches. It looked like a spontaneous summer uprising of outraged parents, and it was everywhere, until it suddenly vanished. If the buzzwords evaporated, the vitriol and violence didn't. The metaphors for... The metaphors of warfare are becoming more literal by the day, as far-right paramilitary cosplay groups are taking these messages to the doors of LGBTQ events, breaking windows at night, and firing into crowds at nightclubs. Yeah, don't forget destroying uh, uh, electricity substations. Yeah, I, I, I was going to include that. News is happening as we're uh, as we were preparing the script. So I, I was going to include that, but I wasn't sure because nobody is willing to absolutely confirm, but right. it looks really clear that 45,000 people were out of power for days because of this. All to shut down a, uh, a, a drag show at a library. Culture wars are the centerpiece of the messaging from the GOP presidential frontrunner, Ron DeSantis, and the party is following Florida's lead. Harmful legislation has already passed with more in the pipes for these far-right cities and states. And fuck, if it's not Texas or Tennessee, it's always Florida, isn't it? And that, that, that's one of the things that, that Doug Mastriano, the guy who was running for governor in Pennsylvania, the QAnon colonel, 
he was saying that if you like what's going on in Florida, then vote for me and I'll make it happen here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what a fucking nightmare. Now, he didn't win, so maybe Pennsylvania doesn't want that. And we're blacking out our handmaid's bingo cards with this shit. Librarians and city councilors are still being mobbed by irate conservatives in what would otherwise be boring bureaucratic local meetings about minutiae. It's just not in the spotlight anymore, in part because it worked. The Community Center Blitz is now part of the standard toolkit of the far right. These culture war skirmishes didn't get the turnout that Republicans wanted in the midterm elections, and it seemed like those talking points were in the rearview mirror in the aftermath. But the front lines are still active, and all that shouting in schoolhouses had a grim impact. CRT was traded in for drag shows and groomer teachers with more boots on the ground than before, and more power wielded by Christian nationalists. After the tragic murder of George Floyd in 2020, and in the midst of the pandemic, a storm of anger over police brutality, racism, and decades of police state policies hit the U.S. in waves of protests. This burst as the pressure release valves failed the usual channels of Democrat party pandering and copaganda. BLM was the top villain for conservatives because they were the ones causing all the trouble. There are many good colors, and I worked with some of them, and I liked them, and I liked this person that I said works at the lounge over there. But there's the ones that are going to march I don't like and I can't stand. i got no use for it. And when your church tells you human rights and you pay no attention to your church? I pay, I pay attention to my church when they say about human rights. But what, what the marchers want, they don't want rights. They say they want peaceful coexistence. How can they have peaceful coexistence when, when there's all this trouble? Who makes the trouble? They do by marching. There, there's got to be a simpler way. That was from 1966, during the Civil Rights Movement. The backlash to calls for equity in the last two years came from the same old arguments of the last few decades, but they used new dog whistles. So if everybody listening couldn't tell so far, this is a Jules episode. So I'm reading the things (laughs) that he wrote for me. (laughs) (laughs) And when I wrote this, I was... Thinking of it in your voice, I and I realized after I wrote it that it was kind of inspired of when you were talking uh, about Claude Borillon. Oh my gosh. Subconsciously, <laughs> on accident. So yeah, this, this is, these are Jules's words through my mouth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> on a cool autumn night in the White House, the warm glow of the TV filled the room and the flicker of Fox News danced across the face of then-President Donald. Appearing on Tucker Carlson tonight, Christopher Rufo told the President and America about a scary new threat to the freest country on Earth, the threat of critical race theory. This is from the permanent furrowed brow, Tucker Carlson. Conservatives need to wake up that this is an existential threat to the United States, and the bureaucracy, even under the Trump administration, is now being weaponized against core traditional American values. And I'd like to make it explicit. Uh, The president of the White House, it's within their authority and power to immediately issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory trainings from the federal government. And I call on the president uh, to immediately issue this executive order and, and stamp out this destructive, divisive, pseudoscientific ideology at its root. Uh, and I think that it's something that he's denounced, uh, this kind of Black Lives Matter and neo-Marxist rhetoric in places like Portland and Seattle. Uh, but it's time to take action and destroy it within his own administration. 
They are essentially starting in 2011 with an Obama executive order uh, mandating diversity and inclusion initiatives throughout the federal government. Uh, they've created these offices of diversity and inclusion who ostensibly are supporting uh, greater diversity, but in practice, according to sources throughout the federal government, uh, serve as almost internal intelligence services uh, to perpetuate this ideology and to root out conservative ideas and ultimately purge conservative employees. A diverse country can't can't handle this for long. <laughs> a diverse country he's so concerned about all of a sudden. And, and the uh, the the idea that there's these offices that are that are functioning as as Gestapo offices that are rooting out conservative voices. It's like, well, well, Chris, they're only rooting out conservative voices that are against diversity and inclusiveness. <laughs> yeah, those are the only ones that they're concerned with. They're not talking about political ideologies and whether or not we should be trying to balance the budget or that's just all bullshit and we should spend money to help people. No, they're talking about the specific people that are resisting the urge to increase the, uh, the, the diversity of their departments. Hey, we need to have a homogenous group of people in all offices and establishments. It's clear. Well, we, it's clear. Everybody who's <laughs> listened to this show more than once knows that's exactly what you want, Jules. Oh, damn. <laughs> Critical race theory wasn't new, but it certainly wasn't in public schools any more than quantum physics or how to adult 101. In Rufo's words, to get to universal school choice you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. The Secretary of Education under Trump and current Lucille Bluth impersonator Betsy DeVos wrote this in a July 21 opinion piece for Fox that lays it out. I don't think I can do her voice. I, I, would, I would love to hear you try it. I'm so on the edge of my seat for that. <laughs> no, it's, it's sort of like a, uh, a Phyllis Diller sort of voice. <laughs> So everybody just imagine Phyllis Diller from an episode of Scooby-Doo and you'll be good. Most parents are speaking out because they care about their kids and they're tired of government-run, union-controlled schools imposing their theories of what's best for them. It's why Americans should continue to declare independence from the monopoly of government-run, union-controlled schools. Two paragraphs already repeating the same sentence. Schools should exist to serve the needs of students and parents, not the other way around. When schools fail to meet that mandate, parents should have the power to take the tax dollars allocated for their child to different schools. I, I mean, I, I can see in your you're getting right to the meat of this right here that the the angle of all of this is perfectly clear. Rufo lays it out that we don't get to to an idea of school choice, which is really just another uh, a rebranding of the 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 initiatives to expand charter school programs or introduce them into areas where they don't already exist without fomenting some sort of distrust in public education. And then DeVos, you know, takes that same position when she's talking about government-run schools. People are tired of government-run schools, union-controlled schools, imposing their theories, which is basically fair wages. I think that's the, the, the theory of a, of a union-controlled school. <laughs> Adequate compensation, job protections. Which, if these unions were these big villains that they're made out to be by conservatives, then teachers would not be the ideal for what is an example of not being fucking paid. There's an inverse kind of relationship that's been shown over and over again 
the with this pattern of of introducing charter schools uh, as an as an option and into uh, public education in one state or another, where teachers are that have been long standing teachers that have already attained higher wages, they, they do not tend to last very long in charter school programs because they're more expensive. And they've already, charter schools have very clearly already seen that there is, there is not much coupling between the, the high rate of pay for teachers and student performance. You know, the, the reason that they get higher test scores in charter schools is because they tend to be drawing from demographics that don't have the same sort of, um, the same sort of economic challenges that public schools often, uh, like students in public schools are often facing. So that's really the thing that's determining how these test scores, because the, you know, the conservatives that are in favor of charter, charter schools, they love to point out these higher test, higher score rankings for standardized testing than their public school counterparts. But that's just not there. Once, it's once survivorship the, when, bias. It really is. Once the economic conditions of the students' families are controlled for, and you're, you're looking at public schools that happen to be in a more affluent area, area where you have fewer students that have economic challenges, then you're going to, you see, you tend to see the same test scores. But what you see in the teachers in those two groups is going to be dramatically different when, even if you're controlling for the, uh, the economic factors, because you don't have those same number of higher paid teachers in, in this, uh, in the charter school programs, because it's, it's a free for all. There's no unionization, so they just let people go. Well, in in Zach DeLaRocca said, when the school doors close, the prison jail cells open up, and or something like that. When he's talking about that, he's talking about the school to prison pipeline that is discussed by uh, countless academics and and studies that show that there is a direct relationship between the socioeconomic conditions of a particular school district and the outcomes of that district. These things go hand in hand, and it's made worse by the fact that your funding for public schools is based on property taxes. So the kids who are already in a lower socioeconomic status are going to do much more poorly, and it's concentrated by the fact that the funds for that school to help educate them and to help right. lift them out of that class are determined by their current standing. Right. It, it, like it creates areas with low areas with lower property value have lower school funding. At least in a lot of places, that's not universal how that how that relationship is decided. It's even compounded by the fact that poorer kids tend to have less nutritious meals or less frequently and uh, study after study will tell you that Cognition is directly related to what kind of nutrition you're getting. And uh, the other variables are parent participation in the uh, uh, schoolwork, so basically being able to look after whether or not the kid is doing homework and helping them and, and aiding them in that way. And when you have overworked parents who may be single mothers or they're working two jobs or, you know, pick the thing that is dependent on lower socioeconomic status, again, we're going to have another compounding variable, which we're just tend tending not to see in private schools for all the obvious reasons. And by the way, uh, 
when Betsy isn't rounding up Dalmatians for her next winter coat, uh, she is advocating or has for years advocated for the school voucher programs. I mean, she was she was the chair of the board for Alliance for School Choice. She uh, was on Acton Institute and headed the All Children Matter PAC. This should not sound like we're we're picking on specific right uh, Republican or or right uh, political ideology talking points. Cory Booker has been an advocate for school choice, and when and he campaigned on it more than once. You know, yeah. so this this is not something that is just you know these Republicans over here doing nasty Republican shit again. No, this is something that is it's a it's it's all over our country in, in regard like and it seems to be irrespective of ideology I mean, the during the um the the bush years school choice was a big democrat talking point yeah and in part for the, all the reasons that we just laid out in terms of how districts are funded because it seems like an easy fix right you know it seems like oh, okay you know parents have a problem with the way a school is run go ahead and let them opt out let them take their money That, you know, or let's just start thinking of it like this, that every household has allotted a certain amount of money that goes towards school funding and it goes with the kid. So if the kid goes someplace else, their funding goes with them. And it seems like such an easy solution to never have to deal with any of the problems that are going on in public schools because the people who are most vocal are going to just go someplace else and then they'll be happy and everybody's quiet and I get to I get to get elected for another term. But the problem is, is that the, the, the school budgets just get reduced consequentially from all this year after year after year after year, then with even less resources than they had in the beginning when they were already spread too thin, they're still expected to maintain these standards that, of course, they're not going to be able to meet. And it's not like the kids are modular in terms of their funding, where you plug in a kid here and they require this specific amount of dollars. And so all you have to do is unplug them and put them in. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a ridiculous premise. That's exactly how they're acting. I mean, that's that. And we've already seen the results. I mean, this isn't an ideological discussion. There, there are actual facts because these programs have been in place in, in different areas of the U.S. for decades now. You can see the result. It doesn't have to. It's not about somebody's belief system. There are numbers. And yeah. the, the, these actual, the actual numbers that show the results of these charter school programs, they're often very, very sort of interestingly and creatively reported because there's not really a requirement for how the, or a standard rather, a standard requirement for how things like graduation rate is determined. You know, this is something that was, was shown in, in Louisiana post Katrina where the school choice movement really got its claws in. They just changed what it means to de- like describe a cohort. So their graduate graduation rates are all really funky. And then, you know, being Louisiana, you'd expect all the wild shit. They literally lost the numbers for an, an entire span of time. <laughs> they were under the couch the whole time. It was lost in the hurricane. <laughs> like all these numbers were just written on a single piece of paper. So you had then Governor Bobby Jindal talking about graduation. They were on a coffee graduate. shop napkin. You had then Governor Bobby Jindal talking about these graduation rates. And the, uh, the guys from uh, the, the podcast uh, Citations Needed did a great job of this a while back, talking about how they were trailing these, these numbers that were, being, that were being quoted by the governor of Louisiana at the time. And then you find out, okay, well, where did his office get the numbers from? Well, they got them from this reporter. 
Where did this reporter get the numbers from? Well, they got them from this person. Where did that person get the numbers from? Nowhere. They were just, they were just created. My cousin's friend's brother's sister heard from their daughter's. It's like talking to Nicki Minaj and finding out like, who, wait, wait a minute, who do you know whose testicles swole, swole up because of the COVID vaccine? <laughs> Yeah. And what I meant by the by the plug and play child funding is is that that not being modular, it's not like when you deduct that child's percentage as if it's all divided equally, uh when you deduct that child's percentage that the cost of that child uh is also equally reduced from that school's expenses. That's just not how it works. So so there's this there's No, it this, can't work like that. The building didn't get three percent smaller and you don't need three percent less staff or you don't need i mean all these things don't change you don't need you don't need three percent less of a principal or less of a school nurse <laughs> or, or something like that because this one because three percent of your students move someplace else you can't do that you know there's there there's a there are these threshold points that you just you can't reduce your expenses that way this fight is about more than charter schools though it's a fight for ideology and control of the historical narrative. Rufa warned that critical race theory has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy and is now being weaponized against the American people. This is from the Washington Post. The reaction to Rufo's appearance that evening on Fox News was swift. The next day, Trump demanded action. Two days later, his budget chief issued a memo laying the groundwork for the federal government to cancel all diversity trainings. <laughs> An executive order followed. <laughs> I remember when this happened. An executive order followed and Rufo was invited to the White House a few months later for a meeting. So that's all I get. That's or that's all it takes to get invited that's to the it. White House. Go on Fox this News. Guy, he, Go on Tucker's guy. show. <laughs> <laughs> say something that uh say something that Trump likes. <laughs> that was September 2020. It was in the very same month that the term critical race theory spiked from the dark recesses of academic obscurity and almost no mention to about 14% of what would be its peak in June 2021, according to Google Trends. The ire in school board meetings and town halls reached its fever pitch in that summer of 2021, and that was not an accident. That was uh, from a school board meeting in summer of 2021 in London, Virginia, which was one of the big ones that made the national news. And a few others as well. This, this is from the same Washington Post article. We have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic, as we put all the various cultural insanities under that brand category, Rufo wrote. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. 
Rufo said in an interview that he understands why his opponents often point to this tweet, but said that the approach described is so obvious. If you want to see public policy outcomes, you have to run a public persuasion campaign, he said. Rufo says his own role has been to translate research into programs about race into the political arena. I basically took that body of criticism, I paired it with breaking news stories that were shocking and explicit and horrifying, and made it political, he said. Turned it into a salient political issue with a clear villain. But it's not. It's not a salient political issue. Because it's a whole collection of issues that have been around since the John Birch Society, or really since the Civil (laughs) Rights Movement, and which is also the John Birch Society. (laughs) Yep. Coincidence there. The John Birch Society has been around since the Civil Rights Movement. How about that? No way. How about that? And there isn't a clear villain because there isn't really a villain. It's a complicated issue where we have an entire nation of people, many of whom are dealing with the effects of systemic racism, a large number of people who are trying to come up with ways to address systemic racism, a fraction of that group of people who may or may not be using effective means to try to bring about that awareness of systemic racism. You have people reacting to those people reacting to systemic racism. A lot of people who just want everything to stay the same forever. And coincidentally, a lot of those same people happen to be white people that have benefited without their knowledge, maybe. <laughs> I'm, not call- I'm not even calling them racist. I'm not calling them overt racist. But there are a lot of people who have benefited from the structures of systemic racism that maybe didn't even know they were benefiting from it. And they just see something getting taken away from them or even not even something taken away because a lot of people couldn't even point to something that as they've actually lost. You know, they, they say high gas prices or I haven't worked in, in three years or something like that. That doesn't mean that that's the reason, you know, that addressing systemic racism is the reason those things have changed. But they just see it on the news and they think they're about to lose something. It's, the, it's that, uh, that old adage about our greatest fears lie in anticipation. They think that they're going to lose something. They're afraid of the possibility. They're afraid of people talking about things changing. And then they think that they're going to get the short end of it somehow. We, we have the anxiety and the alienation from all of the effects of living in a capitalist society and in a stratified society where multiple groups have advantages and others have disadvantages that are structural and cultural, then trying to find an answer for these complex intersections when somebody hand delivers you a really good narrative for how this works that is simple and easy to understand, you're ready to go. Yeah, they're, they're poisoning the minds of your children. It's, it's, it's communists. That's it. We, 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 they're, they're poisoning the minds of your children with communist ideas. They're trying to turn this into the Soviet Union. They're trying to turn this into China. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. By that June, NBC News counted 165 local and national groups fighting race or gender skirmishes. That was the month critical race theory reached its zenith on Google Google Trends. CRT is an obscure graduate level level. (laughs) CRT is an obscure graduate level legal theory. Hold on, let me let me jump in here for a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're obviously talking about things that pretty much everybody listening to this show is very well aware of. But I think there is a benefit to going back to the basic on what what it is we're actually talking about when we're talking about critical race theory. CRT is an obscure graduate-level legal theory that describes how racism actively plays out in dominant institutions, even if the people involved 
are not necessarily actively working to enforce that racist activity. Like you were just saying, Sean, it's not even necessarily that they are trying to be racist or they're putting on white robes with holes cut out of the eyes. It's that these people are participating in a system. What do you mean by these people? (laughs) (laughs) And just by the participation, you're going to have that level of, of, of privilege and also cultural influence on your own way of seeing the world. You don't have a choice. People live inside of their own, their own history and they embody it in, as they bring themselves into the future. You can't escape this shit. You are a product of all of these things plus a little bit of extra spice. There's almost no way around being influenced in your future actions based on your own history. The only way that that can get disrupted is if you start looking at your own history and you start seeing the, you know, looking for ways that your decisions have been influenced by that past. Critical race theory replaced several iterations down the line, but several iterations before it was the PC police. It was, it was, it was PC culture. And when that was the case, I remember that it seemed like they were describing it as you cannot say these things and they're going to they're going to knock on your door or beat down your door and they're going to get you. But it's really just a First Amendment rights thing. And we're hearing the same thing echoed again and again and again. Well, why can't I say this? People just don't think things are funny anymore. You can't you can't be a comedian anymore. You hear all the same stuff, but that's not really what it is. You definitely have people who are actively working to control language for their own ideological ends and sometimes in authoritarian ways. But when you discover that words are harmful or shaping how you perceive the world, your outlook of your modeling of reality itself then you can act on a personal level to change that. When you realize that this word is extremely offensive to a huge segment of the population, you can absolutely stop using that word. It's very easy to do. And it's not because the word Gestapo is going to come in and get you. It's because you're evolving. See, the people who are, that's, that's the best they can do is, is observe their own language and maybe monitor and filter a little bit. That is really the least anybody can possibly do. That's when I think of this stuff, you know, like I, I think of that as I be, I suppose that that's an important thing, obviously, but it's not nearly sufficient to address any of this stuff. Oh, it's certainly not. It's certainly not. What I'm saying is, is that it's, it's part of deconstructing things that you have taken for granted or grown up with when new information comes to light. New informations come to light, man. (laughs) <laughs> and it was the idea of, of CRT was a really good blank canvas for Rufo's idea because it was unknown enough. It's obscure and it was directly influenced by actual Marxist thinkers such as Antonio Gramsci and Gramsci described cultural hegemony, which is exactly what we're seeing here. It, it's, it's a full circle. It's coming all the way back around, but the dominant groups that are controlling society, in part, are 
creating a narrative, whether actively or passively, that justifies their own existence. So if you're going to be in a higher socioeconomic class, you want a narrative that makes that make sense when other people are lesser off or underprivileged. This is according to a Washington Post article in October 2022. Over the past three academic years, legislators in 45 states proposed 283 laws that either sought to restrict what teachers can say about race, racism, and American history, to change how instructors can teach about gender identity, sexuality, and LGBTQ issues, to boost parents' rights over their children's education, to limit students' access to school libraries and books, to to circumscribe the rights of transgender students, and or to promote what legislators defined as patriotic education. (laughs) If anything screams cultural indoctrination, it's doing things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Every sentence must be punctuated by God and a screaming eagle. By June of 2021, Florida's Education Board banned teaching CRT and the 1619 Project. That same month, Greg Abbott pushed pushed and passed a similar bill in Texas. In April 2022, DeSantis signed HB 7, known as the Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, or Woke Act. Stop the Woke Act. I mean, come on. Really? Really? These people are the, the Sudoku ones... Sudoku masters. <laughs> These are the people who've been complaining for years, saying, wake up, she- wake up, sheeple. And now they're complaining that people are woke. I, I don't get it. What do they want here? Well, you, you know that all of that stuff is just convenient. I mean, people will, will attach themselves to any wagon they think is going to get them where they want to go. The woke KGB is coming for white Protestant conservatives. And it's time for them to fight back. <laughs> the, the far right took the 90s leftist slogan to heart, think globally, act locally. They would overrun the school boards. Tina Deskovich, Tina Deskovich, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Tina Deskovich and Tiffany Justice started the most prominent national organization to take the fight to the schools, Moms for Liberty. And it was the organization that was spearheading the book bans, which we'll talk about in a bit. At the beginning of 2021, Moms for Liberty spawned from the swamps of Florida and grew to nearly 100,000 members across 195 chapters in 37 states, according to itself. Moms for Liberty included other grievances against mask mandates, anything that is inclusive for LGBTQ students, and books they don't like. The demands became lists of bans for anything inclusive organized and distributed to chapters and individuals across the U.S. They endorsed 270 candidates for school board nationwide this year, about two weeks after Election Day. They said that just under half their backed candidates won. Five of the eight Moms for Liberty backed candidates won in Charleston, South Carolina, where all nine seats were up for election. They took control of another South Carolina district, Berkeley County Schools, where all six of their candidates won. One hour into the first meeting of the Berkeley School Board on November 15th, they fired the district superintendent and in-house counsel, voted to ban CRT, and created a panel that will study whether some books should be prohibited at district schools. Watch what's the next motion. Watch the motion. Listen carefully. You all have been sandbagged. I make a motion to terminate the employment of Mr. Dion Jackson, the superintendent of the Berkeley County School District, effective immediately. Do we have a second? Thank you. 
We have a motion and a second. Is there any discussion? It is discussion. I'd like to know who, who made the second. Mr. Henson. Mr. Who made Henson. the second? I made the motion. Mr. Henson made the second. Oh, okay. All right. We have a motion and a second. Is there any discussion? Yes, there's discussion. Absolutely. Okay, Mr. Barrow, you're Absolutely. Recognized. I'd like to know the justification and the rationale reasoning for firing an individual who just was proficient in his first annual evaluation. What's the reason, Mr. Chairman? You made the motion, what's the reason why, why are we terminating his employment? Mr. Barrow, I'm not going to discuss personnel matters in open session. As a new board member, Mr. Henson is a part of the six-member team Dr. Hanley just referred to. We, I was not notified of any of these resolutions or, or recommendations. It is unbelievable that on the first night of a new board that such things would come up. Unbelievable. Mr. Chairman, I make I make a motion to name wait, 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 Anthony wait. Dixon. I don't know how much of that clip is going to actually make it into the show because it's not really great audio material. Uh, a lot of it is visual, but what we were just seeing was a really sort of raucous school board meeting on uh, November 15th and uh, of this this past November where most of the group that was observing in the in the audience got up and left and that that was all the the hollering and 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 yelling out that you were that you couldn't really you you could hear but not really un necessarily understand what they were saying what was going on there was the board got a majority Oh no, that people. part was clear. Yeah, that that, that yeah. part's visible, but okay. or <laughs> yeah. understandable. But yeah, they, but nobody nobody that isn't watching it doesn't see all the activity. They just oh, hear the yeah, noise. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, think about the I audience, Jules. They don't know. <laughs> they don't know what we're seeing. At least two of the school boards in Florida that flipped on election day also fired their superintendents, just like that one. This group portrays itself as just a grassroots, aw shucks movement funded by t-shirt sales, which is a line that they repeat a lot when asked about their backers. This is according to Media Matters. There are few, if any, financial disclosures available to review since the group is newly incorporated. But there is ample evidence via donor lists posted from events and political and political action committee finances to suggest the group is supported by far more than just t-shirt sales and membership fees. For example, Moms for Liberty Inc., the group's official name, is the recipient of funds from Conservatives for Good Government, a right-wing Florida political action committee. The group also hosts a number of high-dollar fundraisers, such as an event featuring former Fox News host Megyn Kelly. On June 11, 2021, they threw a fundraiser called Fearless, an evening with Megyn Kelly, and various VIP tickets ranged from twenty from ten to twenty grand with fifty dollars general admission. Then on January fourteenth and fifteenth, twenty twenty two, the group co-hosted the American Dream Conference, which sold tickets for a hundred bucks a pop. Then Moms for Liberty held its summit, its national summit, July fourteenth through the seventeenth of this year in Tampa, Florida. The event included speeches from DeSantis, Ben Carl, Ben Carson, 
Rick Scott and Betsy DeVos. There she is again, showing up again. In a, twi- in a July 2022 C-SPAN appearance, Deskovich said that they got funding from the na- for the National Summit in the $2,500 to $5,000 range from conservative organizations, but stuck to the line about t-shirt sales. In fairness, their t-shirts are $800 a piece. <laughs> and they're pre-distressed. Lots of distress went into those t-shirts. <laughs> they were designed by Balenciaga. And some of the bigger donations from prominent prominent sources are opaque, but co-founders Deskovich and Justice are, quote, happy to keep them a secret for as long as they're legally able to do so. Again, because this is a newer organization and the and so there there aren't a lot of tax filings that cover especially this most recent election period. We're not seeing this stuff yet because they're not required to report anything yet. But then once you start looking at these tax filings, you'll see that they'll receive money from other political action groups like Conservatives for Good Government. And you won't necessarily know until you keep following back who gave the money to who. It's sort of, I mean, it's very much operates like like shell companies almost, because once you look at the filings for organizations like Conservatives for Good Government, depending on what kind of what their status is, whether or not they're even required to report donations. Not all nonprofits are, you know, so you won't even necessarily know who gave them all that money. I and mean, this is why they call it dark money, because it gets yeah. layered through it, get, it gets it, it's, it's a it's original attribution disappears through all these layers. They also created several other organizations and structures. Oh, it's perfect. In we just saw that Moms for Liberty is a 501c4 nonprofit. So that, that means that your donations are not tax deductible, which means they also don't have to report. They don't have to do full disclosure. They don't have the same, same requirements as a 501c3. And they have a different version of the same thing that's a 501c3 for advocacy and other things. So they, they have, it, it is multiple shell, shells, like you were saying. So Moms for Liberty received 501c4 nonprofit status on January 1, 2021, and by January 27th, Deskovich had already appeared on the Rush Limbaugh show. On the Rush Limbaugh show? Was he still alive? Are we sure about that? Yeah. When did he die? Pretty recently, but... (laughs) We're we're doing some live fact checking here. (laughs) Well, I'm suddenly... No longer. Jules has quite a, uh, quite, not quite a sure look on his face about these dates and names. <laughs> well, I was sure until you asked. <laughs> well, that's good that I asked. Well, I'll keep going while he looks something up. Moms for Liberty nationally launched on February 8th with five chapters. By the end of February, the group had been spotlighted by Breitbart and mentioned on Tucker Carlson Tonight. Yeah, he died in February. Oh, great. So a month before he died, they were, he was, they were on. They had connections to right-wing lawmakers, political insiders, and media out of the gate. Jules, I will never question your fact-checking again. Thank you. Your research, <laughs> your research skills are superb until you make a dramatic error. <laughs> it a only th- happens once or twice a week. A third co-founder was added to the initial Articles of Incorporation, Bridget Ziegler, the wife of the vice chairman of the Republican of the Florida Republican Party. They quickly had connections with the likes of DeSantis, Rand Paul, and others. So that that third one who was added, who was added, Bridget, she was quickly removed from it 
I, within like a couple of months, she was removed f- from it. But the initial filing had her name on it, and she was involved in it, which it almost seems like they're out of the gate trying to obscure it a little bit. It was mutually, it was this, this whole arrangement was mutually beneficial for all the actors involved. The groups provided boots on the ground with grassroots tactics and importantly, grassroots optics. God damn it. I said it again. The group provided boots on the ground with grassroots tactics and optics that channeled energy back into the Republican party. The right wing media got plenty of protagonists making their stories for them and Moms for Liberty got funds, strategic support, and tons of publicity and recognition. Everybody was winning. Except if you were LGBTQ or black or <laughs> anyone else on the other end of that. Teachers. The culture wars made it to libraries, both in schools and public libraries. Book bans are an indicator of authoritarianism. Few things symbolize fascism or religious zealotry quite like the image of a pile of burning books. From July 2021 to June 2022, PEN America's Index of School Book Bans lists 2,532 instances of individual books being banned, affecting 1,648 unique book titles. Affecting 1,648 unique book titles. Local chapters of Moms for Liberty, No Left Turn in Education, and Parents Defending Education have collated and, share, have collated and shared lists of books to be challenged. PEN America has identified at least 50 groups involved in pushing for book bans across the country. Of those, eight have local or regional chapters that number at least 300 in total. Some of these operate predominantly through social media. Most of the groups appear to have formed since 2021. That's 73% or 262 of them. These groups have played a role in at least half of the book bans enacted across the country during the 2021-2022 school year. This is from PEN America. The vast majority of the books targeted by these groups for removal feature LGBTQ plus characters or characters of color and or cover race and racism in American history, LGBTQ plus identities, or sex education. In many cases, the demand to pull up books is for books that the library doesn't even carry. Imagine moms showing up irate and furious to your board meeting or just to a local library saying, I demand that these be pulled from the shelves. And then the librarian is like, they're, you got it. They're already pulled. How about that? You won. <laughs> Pan America also described how the overwhelming majority of these challenges to books, which are different than bans, so it has to go through a challenge before it becomes a ban, these challenges were not done in the appropriate way. There's a process for a challenge. First you do this and then you do that. And the majority of them were just people sending in lists that they don't want to see anymore. Lists that they borrowed from some group that they're in, whether it's a Facebook group or Moms for Liberty group. And the outrage of the culture war flavor of the week isn't new. The Birch Society claimed in 1960s that the civil rights movement was a communist plot. In the 80s, moral panics were just as in vogue with everything from hip-hop and rock to Satanism and video games and stranger danger. Around 2010, there were fights over evolution in school textbooks and especially in Texas. If you recall, Sean, there was a lot of vitriol over evolution being taught. At that time, Texas was the center of it because 
the board of education in Texas was going through and deciding what was going to be in the Texas textbooks. Because it requires so much money for these textbooks to be manufactured, the textbook companies will make one version for all of the United States. Because Texas and California hold the largest number of potential sales, they just go by whatever their board of of education says are the requirements. And because Texas typically has more constraints than California, they just defer to whatever Texas says. And that's where the religious right, once again, was making their influence on a national level from a local level. And it, to a degree, worked in 2010. And the machinery of statecraft needs characters and plot devices to move the story along. That's why we have these words over and over turning into new villains of the week, new monsters of the week, because they need a target that's clearly identifiable for this mishmash of all sorts of different policies that those who are actually running things want to advance, like the school choice or pushing the ball forward for constraining what they call gender ideology. When we're talking about these these fights that have sometimes a really bizarre cast of characters and really obscure or maybe obscured motivations. You don't really know what they're after or why they're why they're picking the fight here and not some other place. Something to keep in mind when we're when we're thinking about that is who's paying for all this and where's the which is that's where that's what's creating the energy for it because we really have we have two sources for this energy. We have we have financial motives and we have really religious zealotry where you know this this is back to the christian nationalist crowd that don't want anything that might disagree with a, a particular reading of the christian bible but on the other side the money is a really interesting story Th- this is from a uh, an ap article in 2018 since 2006 philanthropists and their private foundations and charities have given almost half a billion dollars to groups that are supporting charter school initiatives according to an Associated Press analysis of tax filings and foundation center data. The review looked at 52 groups noted by a U.S. Department of Education website as official charter school resources in the 44 states plus Washington, D.C. that currently have a charter law, as well as the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Most of the money has gone to the top 15 groups, which received $425 million from philanthropy. The Walton Family Foundation, run by the heirs of the Walmart fortune, is the largest donor to the state charter to the state charter advocates, giving $144 million to 27 groups. And I think that whoever's uh, up, whoever's leading the pack and how much they've donated trades off from year to year between the Gates Foundation and the, the, the Walton Family Foundation. We ought to be paying more attention to who these organizations are and what kind of vision they have and what drives them. A lot of these organizations have extraordinary influence, and it's often pretty quiet influence, said John Vallant, an education policy expert at Brookings. Charters aren't subject to the same rules or standards governing traditional public schools, but are embraced by Gates and other philanthropists who see them as investments in developing better and different ways to educate those who struggle in traditional school systems, particularly children in poor urban areas. Studies on academic success, however, are mixed. The charter support groups, as nonprofits, are typically forbidden from involvement in political campaigns, 
but the same wealthy donors who sustain them in many cases directly channel support to pro-charter candidate to pro-charter candidates through pu- related political action committees of their own contributions. I'm going to read that again. The charter support groups as nonprofits are typically forbidden from involvement in political campaigns. But the same wealthy donors who sustain them in many cases directly channel support to pro-charter candidates through related political action committees or their own contributions. In one indication of the philanthropy's success in asserting its priorities, Georgia's lieutenant governor was recorded saying he was motivated to support school choice laws to curry the Walton Foundation's favor for his gubernatorial campaign. The Walton Foundation has denied any connection to the candidate. Nationwide, about 5% of students attend charters. They have become a polarizing political issue amid criticism from some notably from some notably teachers' unions that they drain resources from cash-starved schools and erode the neighborhood schooling model that defines communities. The Walton Foundation notes the groups it, it funds have resources that often pale in comparison to the war chests of teachers' unions, the usual foes in their battles over state education policy. The philanthropic support for is, is essential for a small group of schools that represents disadvantaged families with their, without their own political power, said Robin Lake, director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, a University of Washington-affiliated think tank that has in the past been funded by the Gates Foundation to support charter schools and traditional school districts working together. But John Rogers, an education policy expert and UCLA professor, said it's a problem for democracy that billionaires who back a certain model of education can reform of education reform can go toe-to-toe with a critical mass of professional teachers. This this is a money fight when it comes down to it, because regardless of of how much action and activity a particular group like Moms for Liberty can generate. They can't do any of that, like like Jules was saying earlier, without the infrastructure that these larger, more established political action groups that are funded by by a lot of big money that we don't necessarily know the source of can can provide for them. They're not starting off from scratch, just hitting the we, ground with their agenda. We saw the exact same thing with the Tea Party uh, n- nearly a decade ago now, maybe more where it was heavily funded by wealthy donors. I believe the Koch brothers, among others. That well, is yeah, anybody who just wanted to stir shit up, basically, you know, they, yeah. they didn't really care about the, the because they, they have a long, a longer term vision to, to their sense of progress. They're not reliant on an election cycle. So they have bigger picture goals and they, you know, so they, they can fund an organization just to bust things up and to create some chaos, then they can insert their candidates later on, which is exactly what we saw with that, with that, that initial group of candidates that came in after that Tea Party swell. Some of them are still there causing just mayhem left and right, like Jim Jordan. Which evolved into the present day far right candidates that are this populist wing of the, of the Republican Party with MAGA, but others as well. And we see the the same kind of influence coming out of the same kind of groups over the years, over and over again, like Heritage Foundation, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, ALEC, the Family Research Council. These are some of the groups that are writing, drafting legislation that then gets replicated in state legislatures and taken up. So if you look at the language of some of these groups in the legislation that they draft, you can map it one-to-one 
with a lot of the places that it shows up. And it looks as though those places are adopting their own thing, but it's not their own thing. This, this is how this strategy works, where you have the huge amplifiers and you have the original sources of the, I guess, the templates. And then you have the boots on the ground. These are the three actors that are interacting together. You have somebody like Rufo who comes up with the the ver- new vernacular that's going to be the the storyline. Then you have the amplifier with with Tucker Carlson that spreads it out. Then you have the people who are taking up that cause, that mantle, such as Moms for Liberty and all the people who are joining them with that. And then you have the actors who are establishment actors who have been there for years who have something ready to go, such as this kind of legislation. I disagree a little bit with that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that any, that those people aren't doing the same, the things that you attributed to them because they absolutely are. But I don't think it starts with this initial actor like Chris Rufo, though. I, I, I think because Chris Rufo didn't just spring up as a conservative voice. He started off at the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. And then he, and then he was at the Claremont Institute. A senior Institute. fellow, whatever that means. And then he ended up at the, I think he was, vis- he was, I don't think he was, I think he was visiting at, at Heritage Foundation, but then he ended oh, up yeah. at the Discovery Institute. So he's made the tour through all of these, these right-wing institutions. <laughs> Rufo, 21 to 22. <laughs> I mean, seriously, yeah. Imagine the band, the, the, the band t-shirt. <laughs> But th- this has been th- this has been the career that he's that he's outlined for himself doing his time at each of these institutions where he came in contact with the people who fund these institutions. Somebody like Rufo doesn't have cannot provide the energy to to support these. I, I hesitate to call them movements because it gives them more uh, more sense of, of validity than they actually have. But let's just call it a movement for this, for because I can't think of a better word right now. He doesn't have the energy to drive these movements. He's not this this charismatic figure that people are rallying around. I don't think he kicked it off either. But well, th- th- let's just say that he has. But he was one of the vocal people who did. You know, so he's just going to stand in for everybody else in my in my description right now that wears a mouthpiece. But he was not the one that was deciding what the script was. He was the one who was reciting the lions. Yeah, I don't think he's some kind of a mastermind. No, of course not. But what I'm saying is that I want to put the focus where I think it belongs is the people who have these longer term agendas that are funding these operations through these various different political action committees and these different conservative orgs and think tanks like the Heritage Foundation. The money is the source for this. Their, Their agenda, it is the agenda of these people like... Like Bill Gates, like the Walton Family Foundation, like Mark Zuckerberg, that are funding these these initiatives and trying uh, these charter school initiatives across this country, trying to push this school choice stuff, and they've been largely successful over the past few decades to get the to to make it at least an option in these different states. And once it's in there, then they shift the focus into the the specific schools themselves, and they change and they they start funding the schools. Which means we have a very small number of people that are deciding what happens to the education of millions and millions of students in the United States. And that's how you reshape 
an entire demographic because you decide what they learn. You decide how they learn it. And they yeah. get all these other benefits along the way, like busting up teachers unions or weakening them along the way, because none of these charter schools have access to unions. Yeah, it's, it's basically if you took right to work and just like forced it on a school and everybody is there is, you know, they're they're They have no job protections. They have nothing. They can they if they disagree with curriculum that with a, curric- a particular curriculum, then they just get uh, they get let go. These organizations are highly motivated, well-funded, and their intention is to, back to Gramsci, have cultural hegemony. They want to control how the world is understood, and that is far more fundamental than simply votes one way or another. Controlling and influencing how the world is understood starts at the beginning in schools where you are learning about the world. And... It, and it goes on to their attacks that we that we see of artists and of scientists and uh, and other vocal thinkers in our in our society. These are the groups that have the capacity to influence how we understand the world, and that is precisely why they're the targets of the attacks of these conservative organizations who are making this concerted effort to control the narrative of. American history in their favor and the narrative of how the world works. I, I, I personally, I doubt that, that Bill Gates has much alignment in worldview with what's her name from Moms for Liberty. Oh, not at all. That, and, that's, and that's one of the two things that converge. But where it converges is that Moms for Liberty is a useful tool. That, that's my point here is that we can spend a lot of time focusing on the crazy shit that comes out of somebody's mouth, one person or another. DeSantis, for example, we can spend our time focusing on that and, and entirely forget who's funding his campaign and putting those words in his mouth. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. You can find us online at wetwired.net, on Twitter at wetwiredpod and Instagram at the same place. And if you'd like to support the show and help keep us ad-free and independent, you can subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wetwired. Until next time. See you later. These woke, high-IQ stupid people, they're easy to recognize. They hate George Washington. They hate Thomas Jefferson. They hate Dr. Zeus and they hate Mr. Potato Head. These woke, high IQ stupid people, they walk around, they walk around with Ziploc bags of kale that they can eat to give them energy. Now, if you want to eat kale, that's up to you. I don't eat kale. Do you know why? Because kale Wokers in charge of Washington, D.C., the berserk wing of the Democratic Party, they hyperventilate on their yoga mats if, if you use the wrong pronoun. They're all over Washington, D.C.